0: Hi everyone. My name is Mark Graham and welcome to Skewcast, the podcast that explores the who, what, why, and how of the promotional products industry. Skewcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. Skewcast is the official podcast of Common Skew. If you like what you hear, make sure to keep in touch by subscribing to the show on iTunes or at our blog community.com and skew.com. And with that, let's get to it. Hi everyone. It's Mark Graham here. In this special episode of the Common Skew Podcast, we take you to SkewCon Chicago where we share the live interview that I hosted with Paul Bellantone, CEO of PPAI, and Tim Andrews, CEO of ASI. This was a special moment for me as it's quite rare to get these two industry leaders on the same stage. Tim and Paul were generous with their time and honest with many of the tough questions posed of them. The following conversation was recorded live on July 12th, 2016. I hope you enjoy. Well, I want to welcome everyone back to the main hall here at SKUCon. It's uh, a great pleasure to have our two guests that are with us here today. I call both of them very close friends, uh, mentors of mine. Of course, we have Paul Bellantone, CEO of PPAI, and Tim Andrews, uh, CEO of ASI. And we want to welcome to the stage. And I'll say that there's a couple of things I want to say here. First of all, a big shout out to Tim Andrews. He's got this little known trade show that's (laughs) happening about three miles south of here, where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of industry professionals that are getting ready for education and the trade show. Um, the fact that Tim has carved out some time here for us today is absolutely momentous. Um, the other. Thank you. And I also want to give a shout out to uh, Paul Bellantone for agreeing to be with us here today. Uh, Paul, I'm not sure you usually come to the ASI show, but I know when I pitched this idea to you, you said, I'll get on a plane and do this. And yeah. that, that means a I lot. I think this will be my third Chicago show. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Third fourth. Yeah, you
0: right. out. yeah. That's great. Um, so what we're going to do here today is we've got a fireside chat. <coughs> this is where we are going to, I'm going to start things off. I've got a, Whole host of questions that I want to ask these two gentlemen. We're going to be talking about everything about the future of the industry to significant business challenges and what it is that the two of them have learned. Um, we're also going to open it up for questions uh, at uh, some point in the conversation. And Catherine's got a mic where she'll be going around and will be uh, distributing the mic to folks that have questions. So if you do have a question, I'll kind of get to the question phase. Put your hand up. Catherine will find you, and I want you to ask good questions here. Tim and Paul have been very gracious um, about what they're prepared to answer, which is almost everything. So um, I know I'm going to put them on the hot seat, and uh, they're eloquent, and um, and we can't wait to uh, hear hear some of their uh, answers. So without further ado, we're going to get going here. We'll see if we can turn this blinding light off here if we can um, and, uh, and get going with it. So I'm going to start with... You, Paul. I want to know what keeps you up at night.
2: I'm not answering that. No. <laughs> all um, right. Uh, you can leave now, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> um, I worry that safe products, unsafe product, is going to get into uh, somebody's hands. And that, as an industry, we're going to be dealing with a crisis that can affect the livelihoods of all of the people in this room, 500,000 people you know, in our industry. And it's become a mission of mine and the association to do everything we can to make sure that that doesn't happen. I kid around sometimes that it's the only reason why I shave and keep a a sport coat in the office is I'm always worried about that news truck pulling up saying, hey, some kid got hurt by this product or um, there's going to be a giant recall. And, you know, we need to be prepared for it as an industry. Tim.
1: Um, I think what keeps me up at night is... Um, the fact that our industry seems to oppose instead of embrace change and so much of our conversation is about how to keep things the same and not how to change even faster than change is occurring and I think that that if you look around at industries and successful industries that have survived change it's because the people in the industry really tried to make it happen whether it's a travel agent or you you could go down a list of things I think taxis are a perfectly good example they could have added technology to what they all do in each city, but instead they fight Uber. So I I just think not embracing change and using this opportunity really is scary to me.
0: I think it's a great segue. I actually am quite curious to ask you this question about uh, outside disruption. And Tim, maybe we can continue with you. Um, I've noted, I mean, there's a lot of attention that's focused on Uber, Airbnb, Zillow, all of these sexy (laughs) B2C companies that are coming in. And are disrupting traditional, tired, archaic industries. Um, I'm not sure whether you were putting the promotional products industry in that, in that bucket, but so they're all B2C, but we don't see a lot of disruption at the B2B level. What, what's going to truly Uberize the promotional products industry if we define the promotional products industry as a B2B industry? Right.
1: So I think, in fact, that we aren't as subject to uberization, if I can use that that great term that I think... I
0: Trade talking. That's trademark. Oh,
1: is that trademark? <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I think that that happens in industries that are broken, fundamentally broken, and inefficient, and bad industries with bad service and all sorts of things. I, I don't think that applies to our industry. I think we don't give ourselves enough credit. I think we are an extremely efficient industry with manufacturing occurring in very efficient places around the world, imported by suppliers that inventory deeply and widely what they're bringing in and doing it in a very selective way, imprinting it on demand and getting it out within 24, 48, 72 hours to the buyer, and a salesperson who only gets paid if they sell something. And I think that is an incredibly efficient model. And I think comparing that to Uber or all these other things is tough. I think what could happen is the disruption could be those two groups, suppliers and distributors, falling asleep and not embracing technology to make themselves as efficient as possible. Right. I think they need to become super, super, uber efficient. Right. And, and I think that, to me, could, could disrupt us. But I don't think that we've got a bad industry. I think, in fact, we're an extremely efficient industry that is a, perhaps the most efficient that I know. Uh, you know, I think it's tough to find an, an industry that doesn't have at least two or three layers, but having the few that we have is pretty impressive right. to me.
2: Paul? Not too dissimilar an answer. Um, you know, innovation and disruption, for me, are the same. It just depends what side of it you're on. If you're the one ahead of the game, it's innovation. If you're being affected by it, it's disruption. I don't know that any single outside force will meet that um, that definition of disruption. But product safety is a disruption for some companies. It's expensive. Technology is a disruption for some companies. It's expensive. Hiring and, and retaining a diversified workforce is a disruption for some companies because it's changing the way they're having to do business. So it's whether or not they can adapt to those changes. That's the concern I have for this industry. Not a big bad monster coming from the outside, but the day-to-day business challenges that our industry may or may not be able to keep up with. Um, Big bad monsters. We
0: should address them up, I think, early on in this discussion. Uh, there's a lot of people that are worried about Alibaba, they're worried about Amazon. Uh I know there's a lot of people worried about for imprint, but for imprint is nothing compared to Amazon. They're a they're a mosquito and they're a wonderful company. We've been talking about disruption, but what happens if Alibaba or Amazon knocks on ASI's door or PPAI's door and says, All right, I'm ready to be either a distributor, supplier, service provider, or all three. Thank you very much, Paul and Tim. And here's my, here's my check. So what, what impact will Alibaba and Amazon have on our business in the next five years, if any? So
1: I think, um, I think they are lessons for us. I think they are not things I'm afraid of. And so I think uh, if you look at Amazon, it is an aggregator of product from multiple suppliers. And it provides a very efficient way for people to order from, from Amazon. So we look at Amazon at ASI to say, how can we improve... The services we're providing to the distributors and the suppliers, and how do we help them in the matchmaking? Because ultimately, both of those organizations, Alibaba and Amazon, are really what ASI is. We are are bringing together buyers and sellers. And so, to the extent that I can learn from those platforms, that's great. I think the thing that our industry has is depth and knowledge of our industry, which neither of those organizations have. So, I learn from them, and I'm not afraid of them.
0: Paul, uh, just to Maybe for you to give a slight twist on that answer, I know that uh, the idea of membership has yep. is something that, and we had a we had an opportunity to have a conversation on the Promo Kitchen podcast a, a few yep. weeks ago. Um, and for those people that didn't have an opportunity to listen to it, what is Amazon and Alibaba if they come to you and say that they're interested in selling either to end users or selling to distributors if they want to be a supplier?
2: So. We're a membership organization and we have bylaws and we have policies and procedures and we have a membership criteria and if Alibaba were to come to us and say here's my um, uh, the purchase orders and here's the resales and this is how many customers we've done business with in the industry, we would accept them as a member. We We have to accept them as a member. Now within that, we could limit specifically the products and services that they have access to. So as an umbrella organization, they would be qualified as members. We wouldn't have a reason not to. But that doesn't mean that they get to exhibit at the expo if they come in as a supplier. It doesn't mean that they can advertise in a magazine or rent lists of distributors or customers. That, that's where the association really separates it and says, okay, what's in the best interest of the membership? if one of these companies does come in, and that, that's where we would start segmenting be- benefits that they would have.
0: Tim, I'm curious on that same question. Uh, I know that ASI's model is a little different than PPAI's. Uh, I don't know if you're comfortable answering this question, but has Alibaba and Amazon knocked on your door to say that, that they're interested in membership, or have you courted them? Uh, we've not courted them. We had
1: actually, an, uh, you had an Alibaba uh, person speaking, we did as well, because I think it's interesting to sort of hear what's, Going on in, in that world, uh, they wouldn't. They have not courted us. Um, I think if they called us, they'd probably try to buy us. You know, I don't think it would be to become a member, frankly. Right. And by the way, they haven't. And I'm not looking to sell. The cones uh, are not for sale, so don't get any bad rumors started. But but I think that would be the likely uh, phone call. Me to them. Uh, uh, they they would not be eligible to be part of our network um, because they're not suppliers or distributors. They are technology platforms that allow suppliers and distributors to offer. So I don't I, I don't see a path for them becoming either of you know, either this, we don't have a category that they would fit into. Yeah,
2: let me let me qualify my, my answer because I think you bring up a, a, the right point it's that if they met the requirements, mm-hmm. that's what it would be. So if they if they were if they did meet the requirements as a supplier, and that they're holding product and they're selling it for resale, and that they showed that they've done business in that channel, that would be the requirement. On the distributor side, it's buying product for resale. That would be the requirement.
0: Um, I think that would be one heck of a podcast uh, <laughs> if Alibaba were to buy ASI. Oh, and,
2: Jesus. I've started. Uh,
1: this is what happens, right, in and, social media. Hang on. This is what Trump and Hillary, you know, yeah. have never, haven't figured out. Like, and
0: so I'm I'm let's talk not about to that, say. too. <laughs> if, if this were to happen, uh, and Tim Andrews happen. is uh, retired to Saint-Tropez and no longer working, and I suppose everyone's got a price, but... That's an interesting question, and I'm not going to pose this right now, but I just think it's interesting as to whether that would be the end of our industry or it, would it be the beginning well, of to, something.
1: To be clear, uh, Norman Cohn and his family have no plan to ever sell the business. And that, <laughs> that, that is really a, that's a true statement. So Norman has, has it, and his family have, have set it up so that the, I will not be alive yes. if ASI is ever sold. So, uh, and that's not because it's me, but it's because of the aging out of things. So just to clarify that.
0: Yes, we will make sure... <laughs> Alibaba is not buying ASI, okay? <laughs> Put it out on Twitter. There you go. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to get in trouble from Tim afterwards. Um, it's, it's interesting. I was reading an article in the New York Times, I think, maybe about two weeks ago. And it was an article about um, what was happening at Cannes. So a big advertising festival happening in the south of France. And um, there was all of this uh, hand-wringing about this potential new monster. Mm-hmm that was going to upend the advertising business. And that monster was Facebook. Facebook had a big fancy presence on the beach. They were courting all sorts of people. And the traditional ad players, uh, the Madison Avenue folks, um, I think are really concerned about Facebook and whether Facebook is trying to be all uh, uh, nice and, and uh, suggesting that they're open. But at the end of the day, they are dramatically disrupting the traditional Madison Avenue business model. And when I read that, I thought, I'm going to email Paul Bellantone because I send him lots of emails and say, Paul, what do you think about this? And I thought I'd hold off on it and ask this question of the two of you gentlemen, who is, and we're going to move away from disruption after this question, is is there a Facebook equivalent? If it's not Alibaba and Amazon, you've answered that very, very well, but is there a Facebook equivalent in our business? Because Madison Avenue is ASI and PPAI. In many respects, it's the traditional industry that's made up of all the people that are here. But what's the digital equivalent? If if it is that, that's going to come in and terrify the bejesus out of us. Because I, I'm not scaring you guys just yet, and I want I want to get a sense of uh, what's scary here.
2: So I'll, I'll answer it this way: I'm not scared of ASI, and I'm not scared of Alibaba or Amazon. I follow um, common skew I I think about the fact that you have people in both a digital presence and a physical presence, and you're engaging them in the way that we're probably playing a little bit of catch-up. I don't, I don't think I'm overstating it. I'm not understating it either. It's, it's interesting what you've been able to do by getting people to respond to you both digitally and to be able to get them in a room to hear um, what you have to say about the industry and the people that you're bringing in. So... Uh, do I fear you? No, do I watch you, and do I copy you? and do I try to to mimic the things that are being successful? absolutely tim who's who's the the Facebook of the business?
1: yeah, I, I don't I don't know that there is a Facebook of the business and and you know, I think the thing that is most disturbing to me in terms of of all of this conversation is looking around this room and saying that that we don't look like the world we all serve. And so if you look around this room and you say to yourself, What's the racial diversity? What's the age diversity of this room? This room, by the way, is skews younger than our industry if you go to an industry event. But from a racial diversity piece, you know, there are I think eight or nine states in the United States now where English is not the language, the first language spoken by by half the people. And so, you know, in California, for instance, English is not the first language of more than 50% of the population. So You know, we don't look like the world we serve. And so to me, that is the biggest potential disruptor is that we sort of hunker down and we don't say to ourselves each individually, what do I do to bring in people in my business that don't look like me and aren't me? You know, you don't need any more, no offense to the two of us, you don't need any more 50 year old white guys, okay? You need to have some people from an age perspective, from a racial diversity perspective that don't look like the people in this room. That to me is the biggest risk we have, which is that something rises up that is looking like the world and competes with our industry because it looks like the world is serving the world
0: and we're not. That's a great answer. Um, I want to shift to the two of you as business people and get into a couple of questions. Uh, Tim, I know that you have had a long storied career in publishing uh, before you started ASI. Or sorry, you started with ASI. That's another thing I'll get quoted on. Tim Andrews started ASI. It did not happen to CEO. So he'll make all the money
2: when it sells. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so on one hand, we've got Tim with 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 a with a lot of experience in the traditional publishing space, and then Paul. Before you were with PPAI, you have a you're a trade show uh, professional, mm-hmm. and uh, as are many many people at PPAI. Um, of course, the trade show business and the publishing business are incredibly under siege through technology. You mentioned that you're fifty something white guys that are leading organizations. And that are, I, I, think there's tremendous opportunity, but there's also tr- tremendous challenges. I'm curious as to how you've adapted your leadership styles of your two respective quite large organizations to be relevant, given that you've come from a background that is increasingly irrelevant.
2: So from a PPAI perspective and my leadership perspective, I've just tried to become as an omni-channel as possible. Same way, um, most of the distributors in our companies, in our industry, started out as salespeople only, then they're embracing technology, then they're embracing social media. And it's not a choice of being one or the other, you need to be all of them, and you need to serve your clients the way your clients want to be served. So at PPAI, we've taken that that same approach to it, and I've adapted my leadership to that. We certainly have a trade show presence, but we also have a digital presence, and we have a publication presence, both print and digitally. You know, you you mentioned something early on in your introduction about what this event is, and it's bringing people from the digital world into a physical place. It was one of your first quotes that you had put up there. Well, that's what we do every day, and and that's not so much about what my history is, but it's more about what's good business going forward and what's going to work for us.
1: So when I joined ASI 13 years ago, um, our revenue was 80% from print directories, magazines, catalogs, sort of that part of the world, and 20% was digital. And we are now just the opposite. We are 80% digital and 20% print. So digital analog is how I refer to it. So, so we have transitioned, you know, in sort of a different place. We were in a scary place, frankly, then, not because we weren't profitable or any of those kinds of things, but just, you know, if you were sitting here in 2003 and you didn't have a tremendous digital presence and a digital strategic plan, you would have been in trouble. So we sort of transitioned, I think, very effectively. You know, I have a very simple question I ask myself every single day, which is, if I were competing with ASI, what would I do today? And I answer that question. So I would urge all of you to ask that question about your own business. So, you know, what what would I do if I were competing with ASI? And and I really think about what will be the million-dollar revenue idea in three years for us. Not this year. My team can take care of this year and next year. Right? And they may need a little guidance, just like Paul's team needs a little guidance occasionally. But I really am trying to say to myself, what can be a million dollars of revenue in three years or, you know, sooner? And that drives me to change. You know, I'm trying to figure out anybody here using Snapchat. OK, so I would say that was a very young demographic To just raise their hand. I'm trying to figure out Snapchat. So we all have to, I think, challenge ourselves to sort of what's the new thing. You know, what are the 15 year olds doing? And then how do we apply that to our business? Because that's really where everything starts, right? Facebook started there, Snapchat started there. The kids are now leaving Snapchat because the adults are coming in. And so, you know, I think that's what you have to do is just, you know, how do I reinvent myself? Yeah, that's true. The the Times had a story about it last week.
0: Uh, I know that ASI, uh, Tim, and PPAI, Paul, have both been very successful in the industry and have grown uh, considerably over the last several years, particularly under your leadership. But I want to, turn my focus to the biggest business failure that each of you have had at ASI and PPAI respectively, and what it is that you learned about it. Tim, why don't we start with you?
1: Oh, God. So our team about three years ago, four years ago, got this idea that we should target business people to come into the industry, and we should do it in a very innovative way that's never been done before. And the idea was we would do an infomercial. (laughs) And we would put the infomercial on only those stations at those hours when business people are watching. So it wasn't like we're not putting this thing on, I don't know what it would be, NBC, you know, uh, between MacGyver episodes or something. This would be sort of Fox Business News on Sunday and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So because you can do great demographic work, you know, in cable. Well, it turns <clears throat> out, of course, if you're targeting people like all of us, all of us are watching. OK, so we did this infomercial. And I would say it wasn't the best thing we ever did in terms of industry PR. You know, what are you doing? You're bringing anybody in. You're letting in the masses, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say that, you know, was not a good idea. There's a, there, Here's a lesson out of it, though. And this should scare every one of us. This should scare every one of us. We spent a lot of money. It was, it was pretty good. If you didn't see it, it was pretty good, if I do say so myself. It explained the industry, made it look really exciting, really fun. We had footage from trade shows, et cetera. Not a single distributor as a result of running it. And why that's scary is, if we, with all of what we consider to be our power, and great video footage, and hiring the best people in the world that do infomercials, and putting it on these stations over the course of a month and a half, in exactly the demographics supposed to be attacking people that should be wanting to be in our industry, and we can't get one person to be interested, that should scare us. So that was the biggest, I mean, you know, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I got egg all over my face.
0: Well, and I appreciate you being so honest. Um, I, I remember...
1: And first, I had to go first. He can't possibly say anything as stupid as what I just said.
2: I actually well, can. What is it Oh, Tim? good. I'm glad. Thank
1: you. And it doesn't involve me, right?
0: <laughs> I can't. What do they say? The pioneer gets all the arrows. But uh, Paul, I, I know that you've, uh, I know you've had some failures and I would love to hear your...
2: So I wasn't in the president-CEO position at the time, but the association spent millions of dollars trying to develop a technology tool to take some of the friction out of the supplier-distributor channel. And it was brutal. It was a tough time for the association. We wanted to be ahead of the curve. We wanted to help our members. We wanted to make the smallest companies in the industry as technologically efficient as the largest companies and it failed learning from that was um stick to your core competencies and partner with those organizations that do things best but we we now know if i get you know the shivers when my it department picks up the phone at this point you know it's like what are they going to need we're not you know no technology initiatives but we we found a partner that has worked well to to handle those technology initiatives for us
0: um i'm uh... I'm curious to... Uh, Mark, when you smile, it makes me very
1: nervous. I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, I'm smiling because I'm just loving the fact that I can ask you these questions. And I want to uh, I want to say that if we. I've got so many questions here we could go on for hours. Uh, I know, Tim, you've got an absolute hard cap at uh, 1225, and we'll have you out of here. And I also want to give a heads up that in the next... Seven ten minutes, I want to turn things over to, to, to the audience. And I don't want to be so selfish to, to ask all the questions here. So as I say, a reminder, if you've got some zingers for Paul and Tim, uh, Catherine will be looking out for you in about uh, seven or so minutes. And then I'm going to, I'm going to shut up. Okay. Tim, ASI seems to catch all of the flack. I'm Where I'm glad PPI, you well, and, and, and I'm not And I'm not saying that as someone who necessarily agrees or disagrees with that. I'm just saying that as someone if, let's say you hang out online, maybe the particular group on Facebook, it may not be representative, may not be representative of the industry, but there are people that, and if you just look at the typical conversation, ASI will usually get dragged under the bus. Uh, You're the black hat for whatever, whether it's the infomercial or recruiting people or whatever the case may be, whereas Paul, you seem to get off scot-free yeah. at, at PPAI.
1: How is that fair?
0: And uh, Mark's so smart. I, I, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this question. but what, So far, so good. But, but what gives with that? Paul, you start off, and then, t- and then maybe some of you may want to jump in with the question period as to maybe some of your thoughts. Okay. So,
2: Well, I'll just go back to your last story, is that um, ASI – recruits people into the industry and PPAi serves companies that are in the industry and it's simple and I'm, and if, and if my business was ASI I would be doing exactly what you're doing so I just think it comes from the territory that we both play in we we are not the same organization and you know there' we talk about these things sometimes you know it's, sometimes it's like comparing your telephone company to your church they are different organizations <laughs> you know it's they're, they're they're different And you're the things. church.
1: Okay. Of course. <laughs> now I'm now I'm competing with God for God. Yeah. What a setup. finally
2: 13 years.
1: <laughs> now getting it. you're God. Right. I finally okay. And I'm the phone company. Perfect.
0: Is someone tweeting that, please? There you go. We're gonna start all sorts of nasty rumors here.
2: I, I just want those three words. Now you're God. I love
0: <laughs> it, says Tim Andrew. Thank you. So,
2: someone could print a shirt. Uh,
1: I think that's a great answer. I think, listen, we are big and we have been in the industry a long time. And I think that I certainly don't want to compare ASI to Microsoft or to lots of other companies. But if you look in an industry, the biggest players in the industry are often, you know, doing things that make people in the industries that they serve uncomfortable because they're trying to sort of create a dynamic that is growing the industry from their perspective, bring people in. I mean, I think Paul's point is perfect. You know, PPA serves the industry, which is what I think you said. I think that if we served only the industry, you would all not be in the industry. You wouldn't have heard about it. And I think that, you know, one of our jobs is to reach out to adjacent markets and try to explain to adjacent markets why they should be selling promotional products as part of their overall plan. And that makes people uncomfortable. It's like you join a country club and the first thing you want to do is make sure that the rules are a lot more stringent than when you got in. Right. And so I think certainly we've made some mistakes and we've done it, you know, in ways that maybe weren't the best or maybe we didn't present it from a PR perspective the best. But we are we are different, and I accept that. I mean, I, I think the most that I can do is be 100% open, and if somebody wants to reach out to me to ask me why we're doing something or to complain about why we're doing something, I'm happy to explain that. I think also we probably don't do a good enough job explaining because we're a little embarrassed. It's like I spent the morning getting a company who was exhibiting here and had paid to exhibit off the show floor because we uncovered through some work that the company was not what they represented and had flown in from Hong Kong, okay? So I'm not gonna tweet that out, you know, because you're gonna look at this and go, oh, poor Tim, he had to kick one company off the show floor, blah, blah, blah. I'm not gonna get credit for that, so I'm not gonna promote that. You know, we had two people in one of the groups you're mentioning complain about two distributors last week, and one of them, it turned out, shouldn't have been a distributor, and they're out. But I'm not gonna tweet that. That just isn't what I do, you know, it's not what I think is productive. So, so he's a nonprofit. It's like you know God and you know not God apparently, and God it is. It is what it is. But you can always reach me if you got a question. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, and 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 to your credit, you are uh, very responsive uh, to some of the people who are not uh, uh, enthusiastic about ASI, and you know it is what it is. But I want to um, I want I want to acknowledge uh, Tim. You've got uh, ASI Chicago that's taking place at McCormick Place. Hopefully, most people will be there tomorrow for the trade space. show. I su- will certainly be there, and. I I'm I'm curious about the future of trade shows. Um Long Beach, New York are no longer. Um and you now have three big shows. Paul, I know that uh you're you're trying to find the magic formula with Expo East and trying to really nail that. I know you've had some different partnerships over the years. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as to get both of your opinions as to the future of the traditional trade show. Paul, why don't we start with you?
2: Um the Expo is as big and as vibrant as it's been probably in the last decade, almost since we moved it to Las Vegas. Um, it's a growing show. It's a profitable show. It funds a lot of the things we're doing, and we continue to invest in it because we believe that there does need to be that face-to-face connection in a, digit, in a digital world, and the members are proving that to us and the people who are attending. So we're, we're high on trade shows. We believe in trade shows. We think that, um, that they're an important part of what we do. And actually, we had a task force recently, and, and you served on it. There were some other folks who were looking at you know, our membership, and they talked about the expo, and they said that it's the glue that holds the industry together, that it's the one place that's open, big tent, um, where people are making their face-to-face contacts. In Atlantic City, on the other side, we also recognize the demographics that most of our members do not attend the expo. That, that's a fact so we need a presence on the east coast to be able to to have tangible physical social relationships with our members and we're tweaking that and we're trying to find a way to make that um, to make that work it's also a great incubator for things that we try at the expo we can try things in at expo east that we wouldn't dare risk at the expo and see if they work and if they work then you bring it on over so we're we're high on trade shows Um, We're reliant on trade shows. Hopefully, we're not blindly high on trade shows, but we think they have a place in this market.
1: Yeah, we're a fan of trade shows as well. Uh, You know, I think you mentioned the East and West Coast shows. I think those are very odd, difficult, geographic places to have shows. And it isn't just our show. It is the fact that those are difficult places. You know, New York is a very specific place. New York, Philadelphia people don't go to New York. New York people don't go to Connecticut. Boston people don't come to New York. It's very complicated. Same with the West Coast. You know, one mistake that I made was why I probably should have kept the, Long Be- uh, the um, uh, San Diego show because we had it for three years there. The third year, we decided we were going to move to Long Beach for the fourth year. We didn't have, we hadn't lined up uh, space. We had a great third show. We should have stayed probably. Um, so you'll see us maybe back on those two places. Those coasts are different. But I think overall, I mean, we love our Orlando, Chicago, and Dallas shows. We think they're very vibrant. You know, our attendance is, is doing really well. Uh this show is we're trending up at this show both in exhibitors and in and in attendance. And I agree with Paul, you know, I think people really do want to meet face to face. I think the challenge for us is how do you have smaller face-to-face gatherings at these larger big shows and how do you make them more productive? You know, we're using here for the first time uh for attendees and exhibitors matchmaking software so that when a distributor registered for the show, they were asked, do you want to tell us what kind of products you're interested in? We'll match you with suppliers and now you can set up appointments. So we're trying new things to sort of make these big events feel like smaller events. Right. And I think that's a challenge for all show providers, which right. is how do you make them, you know, have the best ROI for both the attendees and the exhibitors. Yeah.
0: I think it's really interesting in this digital age. Uh, and Bobby Lee, in his presentation had, had uh, mentioned that it's all about the meeting mm-hmm. uh, in his case, he was talking about um, meeting with the client and that's really where the stories come out. And, and I agree with you that, that, what's interesting about the trade show is it seems on many levels. So old school, like, it's been around for so long, yet at the same time, I think that we, as human beings, really crave that connection, and it's, it's nice to be able to see the two of your organizations evolving.
2: Well, look at the parallels, Mark, between what you're saying about trade shows and what we're saying about product. It's almost that the, the more things are becoming digital and marketing, the more people, even though we've been around for hundreds of years, are looking for that one-to-one relationship, that giving somebody something, having to thank you, and affecting behavior that way. So I don't, I don't think there's that much of a difference.
0: Um, all right. I'm going to make good on my promise. Uh, are there any people that would like to pose the first question? Roger Burnett and then uh, Bobby will get you afterwards. Okay.
2: Hi, Paul. Hey. So uh, you've, in, you and the board have gone on a rather ambitious campaign that's been announced here with the Get in Touch program. Yep. Um, to me, what's interesting about that is it's for, f- from my perspective, for the first time, it's watching the steward of the industry reach out beyond the walls of the industry itself and say, we want to call attention to our industry, to the rest of the business world as a whole. Um, So I applaud you for that. But I guess speak a little bit about how that got birthed and maybe the challenges in steering that baby from the idea that it started out as to where you are with that today. Well, um, it's the Get in Touch initiative, where we are reaching out to buyers, advertisers of promotional products, to let them let them know that we are in fact a medium, and we're not just the giveaways, and that we have uh, successful stories that we can speak to, and that we work in a digital age, and to really bring awareness and increase the professionalism of our membership at the same time by giving them the tools that they need to be able to tell those stories on their own it was birthed about uh, three or four years ago in a little round table group that we had where we had some of the largest companies in the industries get together and say so, you know if if you're really looking about where to invest association money this is the type of investment that we should be putting our resources towards um, it's different than anything else we've done to answer the third part of that question because it's fully funded it's sustained for five years and it is—it's um, not something that's going to be at the whim of any committee's decision making on a given year or any board's decision making on a given year. It goes longer than any board term and longer than my contract. The, the way that this initiative works, so we know that it's sustained. And the final piece of it is—is is that it, it's a—it's um, both grass tops and grassroots. There's something for the association to be doing in it, and there's places for the membership to be engaged in it as well. So. I appreciate you bringing it up. I know that there's a lot of media around it right now. Um, Read it, ask questions, and get engaged in it. It's five years, and I think it's going to do a lot for our industry. Uh, Bobby, I know you've got a question back there.
0: To be fair, this is going to be a tough question because it's broad, not because you can't answer, but it's broad and it attacks your memory. When I mentioned the phrase best distributors in the business, because you two are arguably in the catbird seat in terms of the aggregate of the best practices. So, you're interacting with more distributor businesses than largely anyone else uh, in the business. What best practices are you seeing some of these great distributors deploying in their businesses that are going to carry them forward in the next 10 to 20 years? Is that major technology infrastructure? Is it reorganizing compensation factors? I mean, what comes to mind when I mention best practices for the next decade?
1: So I think, uh, and I'm not sure what great distributors, you know, you could measure that based on all sorts of things, right? How much revenue do I have? What's my profit? What's my profit margin? There's lots of things in the industry. So you, first of all, you have to decide what you think great is, you know. Making something great, you know, is, is tough to define. To yeah. Right. Right. That whole dynamic. So, so I think that the best thing that I see distributors who are, in my opinion, the best is they're not afraid. Because there's a lot of paranoia and fear. And they're not afraid to talk to their client about the fact that they make money. And they're not afraid to bring a client or a prospective client into a conversation with a supplier to talk about how to solve the problem. They're not afraid to, you know, fund, you know, the hiring of somebody who doesn't have a book of business for six months or nine months or a year because they think that's a good investment. I think that that's what I see. I see many other distributors, on the other hand, who are very fearful of all those things. They don't want their salespeople to understand how the dynamic is. You know, there's still distributors in this world, by the way, who in ESP turn off the information about the supplier because they don't want their salespeople to be able to order something direct. So they don't want anyone to know what the supplier's name is. I mean, think about that for a second. Okay, so to me, that's the best thing you can do because that will allow you then to make all the other decisions. If you're not afraid then you can decide how much should I invest in marketing? How much should I invest in people? How much should I invest in
2: technology? If you're afraid, you can't make a decision about anything. Bobby, very similar answer. It's, it's those, um, for me, it's the distributors that are very self-aware of what their competencies are mm-hmm. and then put the resources to it to 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 match, match that. So whether it is hiring younger people to match a demographic that's changing in a client or being able to have the best of breed technology tools to be able to service a client that way, and then who also isn't scared to go out and actually make a physical sales call. Those are the companies that I'm seeing be most successful, and those are the ones that when I talk to uh, smaller distributors and new entries to the industry that I point to and I say, well, look at how this company's done it. But it does involve taking risk, and it does involve taking blinders off. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Uh, Mitch Silver's got a
3: question.
2: Did you have your hand up before?
0: No.
3: <clears throat> Paul, in the last Promo Kitchen podcast, you made a comment but I'd also like Tim if, if you could comment on what I'm going to say and you, you noted that the number of suppliers has gone down mm-hmm. and as a, a mid-sized supplier, like the challenges we have from even three years ago seem com- almost completely different than what they are now and we're, <laughs> we're, we're wondering out loud Will we be relevant? And then what's the definition of a supplier? If if our customers are becoming less product resellers and are becoming service providers, then what does that mean for what a supplier looks like? So it's really really two, two parts. What's happening to the small, mid-sized supplier? And what does a supplier look like in the future?
2: So take the first part of that what's happening to the supplier from what we're seeing is that they they do not have the financial resources to be able to stay as cutting edge and to meet the requirements of a more sophisticated buyer whether that buyer be um, someone that they're selling to through our channel or through other channels and that's th- that's not unique to our industry it costs more to maintain technology it costs more to be compliant it costs more to hire um, Employees, so that that's the challenge we're seeing on PPAIs. I would say when I came to the association in '98, we had about 2,000 suppliers. I think we have 1,600 of them now, so it is at a 20% drop in the suppliers. Um, I don't. I don't know. Is is the other answer? And and I I think about that. It 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 worries me. It it worries me because I'm looking at suppliers struggling, and I look at the number of companies, the suppliers in our industry. That are reporting under a million dollars or under two million dollars. And I just wonder how they make it happen and attend these trade shows and invest in technology marketing. I, I don't know what the answer is for the suppliers, but we've seen an increase in consolidation. I know we've talked about this. You've seen an increase. Um, the next three to five years, I think are going to be very, very challenging, but I don't know the answer. We're, and I, and I sit around some of the best minds and some of the best volunteers who just tell me that they're struggling and they, They're having a hard time figuring out a way out.
1: So I would have a couple of comments. First of all, um, I don't think there's fewer suppliers than there were 13 years when I joined. We have about the same number of suppliers in the ASI network as we did 13 years ago, roughly 32 to 3300. I think that there are opportunities for suppliers to work more closely together. There is some consolidation. But if I look back and say the top 40, I think I have to go to the top 20 because I think 30 years ago we didn't have 40 top 20. It's something like uh, 22% of the industry sales were with those top 20, say 30 years ago, were about 27% now. Yeah. So there is some consolidation in that top number, but the number of absolute suppliers is roughly the same. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for suppliers to, to work with us and with other providers in the industry to be more efficient. We actually have a demo. I'll put a little plug in at 2 o'clock today for something that's really quite important for people to see and talk about. Um, so we're really interested in how do we have more open systems at ASI and across the industry? How do we sort of embrace you know, change and sort of say the world can't be a closed society anymore, that we've got to really sort of work together in ways that we might not have, any of us, five years ago or ten years ago. Um, I think there's always more opportunity. I, I really believe that. I think that suppliers have to face some challenges. One challenge is the fact that uh, you've got to figure out all of you. How many people are suppliers in this room? Okay, big number. So you've got to figure out soon, how do you get every order that's placed by 4 o'clock out today? And I know that sounds daunting maybe to some of you, but we have a buyer, a distributor buyer or the end buyer that they're serving who has an Amazon expectation. So getting back to your point, you know, if, if I order you know, bounty paper towel to be delivered to my home on, on Amazon right now, if I don't get an email in a minute confirming that the order was there with a tracking number and when it's going to be delivered to my home because somebody might spill something on the countertop to be cleaned up tomorrow, I panic. Right. And I log into Amazon and is the order there? What happened? I didn't get my thing. Right. So we've got to make an industry work like that because if we don't, we won't be meeting the needs. So we got to figure out how we move fast. And in fact, you know, I came back from Asia, the shows in Asia with, with lots of observations about what I saw this year for the first time that I hadn't seen say two years ago, five years ago, whatever. First, English is becoming the language of business there, which it wasn't five years ago. Secondly, smaller quantity minimums you know, and faster turnaround time from Asia, okay? So the perhaps the only sustainable advantage that a supplier has and that we have as an industry, the sustainable competitive advantage we might have is distance and time. So we've, if, if, if we think that's the only sustainable competitive advantage we may have from a supply chain perspective, supplier to distributor, we've got to figure out how we make that as thin as possible. How do we take out all the costs that we can take out and how do we get that order out in five hours or three hours? So that in fact, a distributor can say to their buyer, Always call me at the last minute because I love last minute orders. That's what I specialize in. Okay, instead of you know, oh my god, three days, four days, uh, what am I going to do? And the supplier says, oh my god, the expectations are up here. Well, because that's just what it is. You, you we just got to give up. We can't fight that. So you've got to figure that out. If you can't figure that out, then you got to figure out a way to figure it out.
2: One of the challenges, and and it's not inconsistent what what Tim's saying, is that um, you know the the business practices on the distributor side are saying I'm going to work with less suppliers that are doing more of my business. And I don't know that that necessarily jives with needing 3,000 suppliers. I think distributors are looking into the marketplace and saying, do we need 3,000 suppliers? I'm not I'm not making a judgment call on that. I just know that distributors are spending all their time trying to consolidate their businesses to to those suppliers that they know are going to handle 80% of their business. And that's just running a little bit different, a little bit counter to... The, the number of suppliers that are in the industry, and I think that that's driving some of the consolidation as well. And by
1: the way, I think it's a big mistake, just to have a footnote on that. So I think the distributors are saying that sometimes. However, when we look back over the last five or ten years and say, where did innovative product come from? The innovative product came from a new supplier or a supplier that was small that brought something into the marketplace that the big people had not seen. Yep. So if you are limiting yourselves to the top 40 or you're limiting yourselves to the 60 you know the best or the 300 you know your best, the, know the best, you're making a big, in my opinion, a big strategic mistake because the smaller suppliers and the new suppliers often are the first. They may not be the cheapest. They may not be the ones that have it the longest, right? But they're the first to bring in the USB drive. They're the first to do some of the innovative, you know, decorating, et cetera. So. You know, I think we have to be very careful that we don't we don't wake up. If we wake up sometime and we are 60 or 70 or 200 suppliers, this industry will not be nearly as well-served as it is by having thousands of suppliers. It will not be. And the same on the distributor side. If we wake up and there are 100 distributors in our industry, we will not be as good as we will be with lots of independent distributors that are operating across this,
0: this continent, in my opinion. Great. Um, I think we have time for one more question. I, and Thank and you very much, Reggie. Mark. And then we'll uh, then we'll get wrapped up uh, with uh, a concluding question. This will be so a Reggie. tough
3: one. No, it won't, Tim. Tim, by the way, thank you for wearing our corporate colors today. It's really appreciative of that. So
1: I live in Princeton, New Jersey. So this is also the Princeton colors. So,
3: <laughs> and thanks, Paul and Tim, for being here this afternoon. It's an honor and a privilege to have you here. As I crisscross the country talking to customers every single day about their association with your company's affiliations. I've been noticing a trend that a lot of them are not renewing their memberships. I see a little affinity um attrition going on um which concerns me as a supplier what How can you tell us what value that a distrib- that you can bring to a distributor so they feel comfortable that
2: what they're paying for they're getting a lot more in return
1: directed both of us or one of us or first go.
2: so um Uh, We're not seeing that phenomenon at PPAI. We've actually um, almost doubled the number of distributors over the last five years. Our retention rate hovers around the upper 80s, maybe low 90s, which is unheard of for a trade association. We have a value proposition that I think is unsurpassed. Now, I want to qualify this as the trade association talking, and then you have a technology and a media company for about 85% of our distributor members pay $495 for membership, which is comes out to about a buck and a quarter a day. And for a buck and a quarter a day, they get industry advocacy, they get education, they get research, they get magazines, they get trade shows, they get a, a top-of-the-line tri- technology tool, they get advocacy, they get product safety work. I think that at a buck 25 a day for 85% of those distributor members, we are the best value in the promotional products industry. So... Uh, and I think that speaks for where we've been able to grow and add more value in our retention. So if you want to please forward me anybody who says they're not going to renew, because I would love to be able to talk to them about what else can serve their business for about a buck and a quarter a day.
1: And you can to me, too, because uh, our retention rates are actually up this year from yeah. historically. So I would say people move around. They make decisions. Uh, you know, things happen. They, they, you know, it's a very dynamic market we're in. You know distributor and supplier both um, but our renewal rates are up from say four years ago five years ago and I feel great about that I think we're providing a great platform we're gonna be showing here at ASI Chicago a lot of new things that we're really excited about on the technology front which I think are extremely compelling and competitive and price competitive and will really make everyone more efficient so from my perspective I'm feeling good about where we are
3: yeah
0: I wanted to ask um, I think what might be the last question and I want to do uh, the the two of you, the honor of asking it because when we were speaking about putting this together, each of you said, Mark, this would be a really good question to ask each of us. And I was surprised that that with this question, so I'm going to ask it. So Paul, so these are hypothetical questions. I'll put a big hypothetical here. We don't want this soundbite to go out here. (laughs) So hypothetically, Paul Bellantone is the new CEO of ASI. And I become God. Uh, well, we, we haven't quite got to you, Tim. Uh, you have a special case. Uh, it's not a bad guy. So Paul Bellantone is the new CEO, president and CEO of ASI. I want to know what you are going to do in your first 100 days. And I'm asking the same question of you, Tim. That Tim Andrews is no longer the CEO of ASI. He is now the new president and CEO of PPAI. What are you going to do in your first 100 days to enable change?
2: So, um, you know, I've been thinking about this and the answer to it actually um, it confirmed what I thought the answer was going to be based on style dialogue. I would set a mandate out for my staff to create the most seamless technology that would allow the industry to be able to ha- to give their customers an experience that parallels Amazon. I would make that a singular focus that, that this industry would have that technology available to it. I think the second thing that I would do and it really um, speaks to the, the softer part of, of, of the business, is I would be more clear about what we are and what we're not, and I think that that would allow um, those, those conversations that happen on Facebook or the phone calls that each of us get, a little bit more of an understanding of why you're doing the things you're doing and the value of the things that you're doing versus if, if PPAI and ASI are seen as the same thing, then why are they approaching the marketplace so differently? So I would spend some time doing that, but it would be really the uh, relentless pursuit of incredible technology.
1: Great. So the um, first thing I would do would be uh, endorse the ASI technology platform, <laughs> which, which we're launching at ASI Chicago uh, this week. So I would endorse that. Uh, and the second thing I would do is, is really think about the long-term life of the industry beyond the people that are in it today because i think that definition of serving just the industry as it exists or the players that are in it today uh, and i respect very much the work to explain to the buyers and the ad agencies and all the other people you know what the industry is about i think that's really a quite important strategy but i think thinking about how do we help each of you hire people recruit people how do we bring more people in the industry that are going to help all of us broaden the definition of what this industry is. I think that is something that 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 is uh, too limiting right now in terms of the PPA definition. And I would definitely, uh, after I endorsed ASI technology, I would definitely get on this second thing as well.
0: Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.com and skew Com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening.